Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi everyone, welcome back to Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. I'm Jeremy, with me as always is Trevor. The script also says Curtis, but he's not here today. So, hey Trevor. I will be playing both roles of Trevor and Curtis. <laughs> Curtis is a silent role, just so we know. So today we are proud to welcome to the show Brian McCauley. Trevor and I had the pleasure of meeting you, Brian, at StokerCon. I know Trevor got to get to know you a little bit more than I did, um, but it's great seeing you again, man. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so glad we got to connect at StokerCon and uh, delighted to chat with you both today. Absolutely. I've been looking Absolutely. forward to this for like months. I <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so just so talked a lot about it. It's, it's cool. So let me introduce, before we get in with the interview, Trevor's got the, the interview questions, but let me introduce you, Brian, to our audience real quick. Um, so... Um, Brian is a WGA uh, screenwriter whose produced credits range from family sitcoms to horror films. He holds an MFA MFA in screenwriting from Columbia University and teaches at various schools in Los Angeles where he currently resides. And you can connect with him on social media at Brian McRider. Am I right? That is correct. Awesome. 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 So you've had a really interesting uh, career in writing, and I kind of wanted to just start off by – Hearing your story about how you came into writing and uh, and and where your career has kind of taken you uh, so far, leading up to your debut novel coming out in October. Yeah, I mean, writing and reading were a big part of my childhood, and through high school, I was always writing short horror stories, um, but also just constantly watching horror films and reading horror novels. Um, and in undergrad, I took a mix of creative writing and screenwriting and film classes. But once I went to, to get my MFA at Columbia, um, focused on screenwriting, uh, and actually I wrote my thesis screenplay there. Uh, this was almost 10 years ago, ago now in 2013. <laughs> wow. My thesis script, yeah, was it was then called Monster Man, but it is the story that would become Curse of the Reaper. Um, and it was a top five finalist at Austin Film Festival and, and producers here in L.A. really responded positively to it. But I just never ended up selling it. Um, it just became more of a sort of calling card script. And uh, since then, that, that kind of opened doors for me to I've written a handful of TV movie thrillers for Lifetime Network, um, an indie psychological horror flick called Dismissed. And then on the TV side, I sold an original series to Sci-Fi Network and, and wrote the pilot script for them. And then uh, an episode of Fuller House for Netflix, which is kind of a, a bit of an outlier with the horror thriller stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was that that work in, in film and TV. It was I'm grateful to have had so many things actually produced. A lot of screenwriters, I think, end up with what happened to me with the sci-fi project, which was that you know after a long time of working on something, it never actually gets made. Um, but yeah, the 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 characters in the story from Curse the Reaper always were kind of haunting me to, not to be too meta about it but <laughs> just like that feeling that you're like ah it's still you know it's a concept i still haven't seen done the, all these years later and i just feel like it still needs to find a way to to live and uh yeah then I, that was when i decided why don't i go back to my my fiction writing roots and try writing my first novel um and so that this this was my first novel and but definitely will not be my last it's been a really wonderful experience that's awesome so i've um i i did a a binge watch of uh all of your stuff over the weekend i did 
Oh no. <laughs> no, it was it was a, I had so much fun doing it because uh as I was watching I was like, man, I feel I feel like Brian maybe has some family stuff he needs to work out like <laughs> I there was like a lot of um <clears throat> there was a lot of a lot of family conflict for sure and a lot of yeah. you, you know kind of characters in uh dramatic situations. I I almost I almost feel like uh the sitcom is is not really all that much of an outlier from some of the the thriller stuff because it's all about like the character dynamics, and um, sure. and I felt like there are some really interesting character dynamics you know that kind of pervade through your work. Um, what would you say is is kind of like your inspiration there, or or um, just like screenwriting tips? You know, how do you make some of these um, let's call them just more uh, intense kind of dramatic situations. I don't want to spoil anything, but you <laughs> no, know, kind of great... how, do, how do you make that work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's interesting that that thread of family dynamics, I think it, um, you know, a part of the root of that was being at, at Columbia for film school. It's much more of a sort of Sundance drama oriented program, I would say, than it is sort of Hollywood and genre oriented. Um, and I'm grateful for that because it didn't, it didn't make me stop writing what I wanted to write, but it made me be a lot more thoughtful about character development and those interpersonal dynamics. And so, you know, one of the Lifetime movies that was produced was a spec script that I'd written at Columbia um, called The Carpenter's Daughter. And I had originally tried to write it as just a really violent, simple revenge thriller where it was like <laughs> a man who's a carpenter, his daughter gets hurt and he goes on a, killing spree with a two by four kind of thing. And my, <laughs> my, my, uh, and the various tools of Carpenter, of course. Um, so, uh, my professor though at the time really encouraged me to like, take a step back, think about the characters and like maybe slow down the murder. Um, and I think that, uh, that really, uh, and I, I remember being outside of class one night and talking to my classmate and being, really annoyed and self-righteous about him. Like he's turning my, my cool revenge movie into a lifetime movie. Uh, and then I sold the script to lifetime and that started like that started my career and I could not be more grateful for it. Wait, um, which film was that? Was that the, the perfect daughter? It, yeah. So all of my lifetime movies have like six different names because they get, <laughs> yes, you know, they premiere. I didn't want to bring it up, but, but yeah, it's like yeah. a lot of conflicting titles. Oh yeah. So like, I will give it a name and then Lifetime gives it a name. Usually their movies have the word nightmare in it. So <laughs> right. Nanny sorority nightmare, nightmare, sorority nightmare. Um, <laughs> but then they also, all of these films get sold internationally to, to various, um, like, uh, to Spain and Belgium. And then they all get different names in those territories because certain words and concepts don't translate. So right. it's, yeah. So, but that script was originally called the carpenter's daughter. And then, was called The Perfect Daughter when it premiered on Lifetime and probably Nightmare Daughter somewhere as well. But, um, <laughs> Which is, uh, that's really sad for the daughter. I, I mean, she, she's yeah, much maligned in that movie. It's really, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think, I think for me, it, it always comes back to character. Um, and even if I feel like I have a, like a clever idea for a story, if I don't have a character that I really want to explore in that, deep way then I don't really have my way into the story yet um, because that's 
what keeps me interested and what, what I want to keep exploring. And I think what keeps audiences and readers interested is, okay, I'm invested in this character. I am locked into their both inner conflict and external conflict. And that's why I'm going to be along for the ride. Yeah, I, I feel like um, Jeremy and I were both talking about uh, the novel Curse of the Reaper. And and uh, one of the things that, that I noticed about the book, uh, again, I don't want to try to spoil anything or anything like that, but um, character is, is central to this novel. You know, I, I went in expecting uh, murder by two, two by fours, you know, kind of like, yeah. like uh, you kind of like to write, but um, I, I was surprised just at, at how very deeply connected I felt to both the main characters of the novel and like the, you know, just the stakes for their lives. I felt like they were both very sympathetically portrayed in a movie that should be about, you know, like a weird psychological monster. Um, how do you think that, you know, building a character dynamic is different in a novel where you have a lot of prose, you know, versus a screenplay where um, you don't have as much space to kind of dig into the internal mechanisms of what someone's really feeling or, uh, you know, really thinking in the moment. Yeah. I mean, first, thank you for, for sharing that experience with the book and that um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the, the character development resonated in that way. Cause that was definitely a goal, especially taking it from a screenplay version into the novel was to go, go deeper and expand, especially Trevor's story was, was a much slighter subplot in the feature script version. And I knew in going into the novel, I had an opportunity to really dig into his inner turmoil and also flesh out his external world um, in his recovery and the characters that he meets there. And uh, that, that I think was the biggest difference was, you know, both Howard and, and Trevor are, are battling demons in their, in their own uh, minds and, and externally and uh, to be able to use prose to go go a little bit deeper and also to to echo that psychological experience of, of being haunted or struggling with an addiction and um, to I, I, I think that that's where a, a novel gives that opportunity to put the reader really directly in those shoes in a way um, that makes you feel like you're inside their brain and I and that's why I, I had that sensation that this 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 story actually fits a novel really well, um, even mm. though I initially conceived of it as a movie. It's, it's really interesting how well it, it does work, I think, as kind of like uh, both psychological thriller, because it is very much a, a psychological thriller, uh, and also, you know, a more kind of conventional <laughs> slasher horror film. Um, but but it it's uh, it, it serves as a really fine novel, and yet and I can also simultaneously see it uh, like almost hear it or visualize it as a film, um, which I, I think is really unique. I mean, Jeremy, you've kind of played a little bit um, with that notion with, with eyes only, you know, it, it being almost like a kind of like a TV series kind of feel. Um, it's something I don't see a whole lot of in literature. You know, I, I think the, uh, just like the adaptability of this one very singular experience to a new experience, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, an experience in a different medium. It's very right. postmodern, I think. That's a yeah, word. I think that it. it's. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like there's there's an opportunity in fiction for fiction writers to really have different voices and to explore that that medium in a way that I think is a lot harder in screenwriting. Screenwriting is a very so I, I think Grady Hendrix in an, in an interview talked about it as a, a ruthless format. It's just so strict and so um, so unforgiving in, in how economical you have to be. Um, so it's I think it's it's harder to have a clear voice as a as a screenwriter. Uh, I think that in fiction you can really yeah. For me, it was a matter of of knowing that I'm going to bring my 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 cinematic background to this, and that's going to be part of of my voice. Is that um, that it's going to feel and flow like a, a movie or a, a TV show, and but also have that extra layer that can go a little bit deeper than than just the visuals. But I think still the the you know the screenwriting tenet that I always refer to and when I'm teaching as well as show don't tell. Um, and in novels, you can tell as much as you want about what's happening in a character's mind or anything. But in screenwriting, you really have to show a character in action because the camera has to be filming something that has to convey something to the viewer. Um, but I think that tenet really applies for fiction as well to, to remember that it's characters as human beings. It's, it's what we do and the actions we take that really define us. I think I'm quoting Batman movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's, that's how we know really who a character is and often what they say might be in contrast to their actions. And that's something I love to explore with, with characters is, okay, what are they saying, but what are they doing? And then in, uh, in fiction, you can also say like, okay, well, what are they thinking and add that extra layer to it? I really like that. So just to thinking about the genres that you've written in, do you find it challenging to switch from, you know, kind of the the family thriller or the, you know, the sitcom to like the hardcore murder horror? <laughs> like, how do you feel about trying to write in such broad strokes? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that uh, there's this quote from the filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch that I love and, and, uh, share with my students as well that is all about how nothing is original um, and you should just draw from all of the sources of inspiration that spark that creative fire from you and whatever you produce as a result of that will be your authentic voice and authenticity is the goal not originality and that for me it really resonates as like I love comedy I love drama I love horror and thriller and, and romance and I want my work to have elements of all of that mixed into it. Um, and I think that that's when, you know, when you look at somebody like Jordan Peele and how just wonderfully he balances so many different sort of genres. Um, I think that that's, I, I also recently listened to a, an interview with R.L. Stein who was talking about how he writes his Goosebumps books and they have those scary cliffhangers at the yes. end of every chapter, yep. right? And how it's really not all that different from writing a punchline in comedy. Right. Um, and I, that certainly resonated for me when I was, you know, writing Kimmy Gibbler dialogue and having to having to put <laughs> buttons at the end of end of scenes. It's like, well, setup payoff is is how scares work as well, um, and mm. punchlines similarly. So I think that there's there's a lot to learn from playing in in different genres. Yeah, I love that you uh, quote R.L. Stein because Jeremy and I just behind the scenes. Jeremy and I fight a lot over the importance of R.L. Stein. Uh, really? It, it, 
it mostly comes down to to me saying like I think R.L. Stein is is one of of like our generations is like modern geniuses in terms of of writing. I'm not saying that he's like a pro, a brilliant prosist, but I think the guy is absolutely brilliant in his construction of stories and how he delivers for his audience. And uh, and Jeremy has a different opinion of that. <laughs> I, I think he's fine for a kids for a kids a children's writer. It's I read one of his. I was telling Trevor I read one of his books one time that was meant for an adult audience, and it was just unreadable. It's one of the few books that I just had trouble getting through. So, but no, I think he's fine as a as a writer for children. I think he's he does his job. Obviously, he's successful. So, I haven't read any of the yeah the, the older AIM stuff. You know, Goosebumps was definitely a, a benchmark for me growing up. Um, but then also Paul Zindel. I don't know if you've read. He, his were kind of the step up from Goosebumps. They were more middle grade horror. Mm. Um, and the, the books were Locke, which was a Loch Ness monster, uh, <laughs> rats, the, the Doomstone Raptor. They were incredibly gory compared to Goosebumps. <laughs> and they, they really certainly tickled my imagination kind of as the step up from children's horror to, I think, more middle grade horror. That's awesome. So like inspiration, right? Yeah. Like drawing inspiration. Cause you said, um, you know, there is no originality. It's really more about authenticity. Right. Um, and you should kind of like take the inspiration where, where you find it. Right. And, and like, you know, kind of take ownership of that. Um, how, how do you do that with curse of the reaper? Because I definitely, I feel there's a, a kind of like a blueprint here, like a thumbprint that's very visible and recognizable through Curse of the Reaper, even though it is definitely a Brian McCauley story. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the obvious reference points were like every slasher movie I have ever ingested. Um, and there are there are little Easter eggs for for fans of all the, you know, the big three of Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, of just little specific kills or nods to one-liners. But, um, you know, there's also a lot of Psycho in there and uh, and American Psycho and uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley is a film that always finds its way and pen book into my work. Um, so I think, yeah, it was an interesting, you know, at the, the pitch on the on the on the cover is is Scream meets The Shining, and I think the the idea there was like, okay, it's the meta horror slasher thing, but it's it's that mixed with like the slow burn psychological horror story, and that's something that for me I hadn't quite seen before and wanted to play with in a in a different way. So I think that the sort of structure and DNA is is a bit more as you were kind of saying is that that slow burn psychological horror until until it becomes the, the, the real slasher. Um, but also playing with the interspersed uh, screenplay segments <laughs> to give a little taste of, of, of the Reaper's history. Uh, yeah. As a, as a fan of, of this book and it, especially as like, I, I know that there's an alternate universe where all of these Reaper movies like exist and uh, and the Trevor of that universe is just a huge super fan of that whole franchise um, because these these interspersed little screenplay moments where we get just like a cut of of maybe a couple minutes of uh, of 
of an actual Reaper script, you know, like, and, and we get to envision the movie in that moment. Um, those are my favorite parts of the book where, where I'm, <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, how, how do we not have nine of these already? Like, <laughs> they were so much fun. Um, I definitely kind of fan cast, uh, forgive me for this, but I, t- I totally fan cast, um, uh, Robert England as the the Howard Browning character. I I felt like that yeah. was just a, just a shoe in. I totally saw the influence of you know something like Scream, but I I also felt like it was a lot of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street um, to an extent, and um, and I, I just really loved the character dynamic of of um, uh, Howard and. Uh, uh, Trevor together, I, you know, I, I felt like they were both like had very distinct needs and, and, um, and, and just aspirations that conflicted really well with each other. Do you Thank see you. that there's a lot of that kind of behind the scenes? I mean, have you like been, uh, on production with a, a film or something like that, where you got to know, like actors or producers or someone that, that kind of inspired some of these conflicts for these characters? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting in that, um, as I mentioned, I wrote this, the script back in 2013. And in that, at that point I had never stepped foot in Los Angeles. I had never had a professional film and TV meeting. Um, but when I came back to write it as a novel, I had been working for some years as a, as a film and TV writer, I'd been in TV writers rooms and on sitcom sets with live studio audiences and on horror films and, you know, dismissed uh, the star of that film that I wrote and produced um, is Dylan Sprouse, who uh, was a child actor in uh, Zach and Cody's sweet life and big daddy. He, he and his twin brother. Um, And he was looking for a script that would show a different side of his acting ability. He didn't Mm. want to be forever cast as, that sitcom kid. Um, but Trevor was already a fully fleshed out character before I mm. met Dylan. It didn't really, I didn't really draw much uh, from it so much as just it kept, that was another way that the universe, I feel like was reminding me of like, Hey, remember that? Remember that script you wrote, maybe? <laughs> um, but certainly, certainly like the, there were a lot of more details going into, as I mentioned, like in a screenplay, you can be a bit more, broad strokes and allow all the other departments to fill in the blanks. But in writing the novel, I, I think my personal experience behind the scenes certainly well, gave a lot more detail that needed to, to filter in. And, um, you know, there are plenty of, of producers uh, like Chuck that I have uh, encountered and he's a bit of an amalgamation of stories that I've heard and people mm. that I've met. Um, so it definitely helped inform it on the details, but I think also I think it was informed by my own emotional experience Mm. and disillusionment with the industry, having actually worked in it then that really was the thing because it was actually after, um, you know, sci-fi network decided to pass on my pilot script. Mm. So, you know, after a year of writing and developing and fine tuning these 60 pages, um, it goes off to the marketing team in New York. And within two weeks, they came back and said, Nope, we're rebranding our network we're only focusing on IPs, which is means intellectual property, yeah. which basically just means film and TV shows that are based on books, comic books, um, Twitter threads sometimes. And uh, that was one of the 
that was a big push that I needed to say like, okay, well, if, if people are looking for IP and I have this story that I really feel I want to tell, maybe I do need to, to try writing it as a novel. And, um, and again, that was that, that extra push that I needed of, um, to explore a different craft and to, to channel my very firsthand experience in Hollywood into that. Um, I think that was a big, big factor. Yeah. So how has the transition been for you, you know, going from screenplay writing to writing this novel? Um, Do you feel like you've been having a a really good time with it? Or do you feel like it's presented more challenges than, than you've enjoyed? You know, how are you feeling? Yeah. I mean, it's so many more words. That's still an adjustment to me. It's just, again, screen screenwriting is such an economical uh, and sort of slight visual, like on the page, only so many words, but um, you know, this, this book is over, over 80,000 words. Um, and uh, it, I am absolutely loving it and loving playing in, in fiction writing and getting back to short story writing. And um, it's also what I love is the community of the horror fiction community. I think that's something I really was yearning for in film and TV and found that it was just more of a cutthroat, um, not, not the most supportive community and in fiction writing and going to StokerCon, as you, as you know, uh, it's just a really loving and warm and welcoming place. And, I was really worried that I was going to feel like an imposter there because my book had not been published yet. And I had the opposite experience of just like people were so excited and open and I just had wonderful conversations like, like I had with you, Trevor, of just sometimes talking about horror, but sometimes just two human beings sharing about their life and connecting. And that, <laughs> that to me says a lot about the genre and that, you know, we're all, we're all exploring the, you know, the darker side of human existence. But I think that comes from a place of, of love and, and joy ultimately. Um, and that's, that's something that I've really am grateful for about, about the horror fiction world. Um, but yeah, in terms of writing, it's, I still structure and plot the same way I do with screenwriting uh-huh. um, and use kind of corkboard with index cards to, to figure out the, the pacing and flow of what the scenes are going to be. It's just now the scenes are chapters and I have to go a little bit deeper than I might have um, in a screenplay. But for me, kind of plotting and pacing is very much still the same practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I really like what you you say about the, the horror community. And, and number one, um, I, I really can't stress enough just how much I love you as a person, Brian. Um, I've, <laughs> this has just been so great to, to really get to know you. And, um, but I, I think like as a reader, as a, an audience member of, of horror so often, um, there, there's like an intimacy in literature, right. Um, that I don't know that we necessarily get in, in other forms of media. And I'm not going to say that other forms of media can't be as immersive right? Um, because I think we can have immersive media experiences. Um, but there's, there's something about a novel where, um, <clears throat> or even a short story where it, it feels like you're spending a lot of time in that space. 
right? And that space has come from another person. And oftentimes, um, even though I don't think that authors are their literature necessarily, I think that there's something of the author author that is given to literature that is, is very unique, right? Um, and, and as a result, um, it just feels like there's a, a closer dialogue, if you will, between, um, you know, like audience member and author. It, Jeremy, yeah. do you feel like there's some truth in that as a writer? Like, do you feel like you share more of yourself kind of through your writing? I do, but I also think that's kind of a trap to to step into as an author, because that is the presumption that I feel like a lot of people make when they learn that we are writers. Like, it's like, Oh, is this your, is this you, is this character, is this, who is this supposed to be in your book and stuff? And I, I feel like that's a, that's a dangerous trap, but I, I do feel like that there are elements of me and my life and the people around me that I do draw in. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily like people, people, right. 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 People, but, but, but like, like experiences, right, you know, that right. you, you mm-hmm. kind of draw from and share with your audience. Experiences, through. even, you know, characteristics, um, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not necessarily whole people. It's, I mean, I would, that's the trap I'm talking right, about. Right, right. Right. But yeah, no, I, I definitely feel like that, that it is a, a part of me and a part of my soul. I mean, I think that's why, and Brian, you can you can back me up on this or not. I mean, at least my experience with um, some of the writing workshops as a fiction writer, I would watch people cry when something they wrote and workshopped was was critiqued heavily to the point of being just torn apart in in a mm. workshop setting, and I would watch people walk out of there and just burst into tears, and I. To me, that speaks to that level of of how personal this work is and how how attached it is to us, um, these creative works. And that's one thing that I always vowed. I said, I'm never going to let a creative writing workshop that I lead get to that that emotional level where people feel that beaten down by it. Um, I don't know. Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah, 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 I think that, that, that's, that's definitely my my goal when I'm teaching is just to be, to be supporting and uplifting and to give you know, constructive feedback about the craft and how to, to tap into like, okay, what do you want to express here? What do you want your reader to feel? And how can we use the tools that we talked about and studied to, to amp up that, that experience for the reader? Um, because it is very personal. And, and I think Trevor, as you, as you said, intimacy is the, is the word too, that, that resonates. Of it. And it's been a very different experience for me now that people are reading this book of mine, rather than seeing the films that, that say written by me, um, <laughs> I, I feel very little attachment to those films because they go through so many mm. filters and there's so many cooks in the kitchen. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there's at least one film that says written by me and no one else. And nearly every word has been changed. Um, and so it's, it's a very strange experience. And, you know, there's a thrill from seeing my name on a TV screen or on a, on a film screen. I'm really grateful for it. But if somebody reads my book and says they loved it and they they specify the things that resonated that are exactly what I was trying to convey, there's a it's a really it's that supernatural feeling that is also kind of the the thing I wanted to explore in this book, right? That like yeah. creativity can feel like a supernatural experience. Um and also kind of to touch on what you said, Jeremy, of like the trap of being too 
invested in your creative work mm. and attaching too much identity to it, because I think that that's a narrative that is pretty common that in order to be an artist, you have to give your whole soul to this craft <laughs> and forsake all else. And I think in it has often been an excuse for some shitty behavior by especially you know, have white men in the in the history of the arts of like that's that's the price of genius i know they're abusive assholes but like look at this work that they create and it's like mm. none of that is fucking worth it get, get <laughs> but i think but you brought I do up a think, good point too about like the uh yeah. you mentioned like giving the students the tools and that's one thing we yeah. talked about when we had Almakatsu on was for a long time, like especially in my fiction classes, there were not there was not the vocabulary. Like screenwriting has a vocabulary to it, and poetry has a vocabulary to it that you're taught pretty early on. And the vocabulary for fiction was so minimalist that I didn't mm. feel like there was much along with it. And so I'm glad you brought that up also. Um, that we need to give the audience because if they have the tools, if they understand exactly what it is that they're critiquing and and how to frame that and vocalize it, then that's probably going to take some of the pain of the workshop out of the uh, or pain out of the workshop i guess yeah yeah because it is as you said like a deeply personal experience if they're really kind of tapping into that well um and i know for me like every there's some parts part of me in, in every character no no single mm-hmm. character is a carbon copy of me but i recognize it's like myself i see it. it's kind of a mirror every character there's some piece some aspect of my personality that I have infused or am reckoning <laughs> with and uh and then just shaping an entire entirely new personality around that that one aspect perhaps which is not it's not a conscious process it's more when I go back and read it mm. and I'm like oh I see <laughs> <laughs> I see me <laughs> it's it's really interesting that you bring that up because I think on reflection of curse of the reaper I mean that seems to be its its kind of creative thesis statement, right? It's the thing that all of the characters really struggle with is just that um, that giving of self over to the art or to the media, to the experience. Um, and and what are you giving over, and what are you taking back? What too is is kind of seeping into you through that experience? You know. It, there's a danger, whether it be in a workshop like Jeremy's talking about, or <clears throat> maybe a, a a bad producer somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, in Hollywood, or or maybe it's even just a, a, a critical reception of something. There's, um, you know, this danger of like uh, negativity, you know, kind of seeping back into you, festering, haunting you, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> all right so um let's uh, kind of get, get back into the mood a little bit so i i was gonna ask you um just about like horror film franchises um what do you think the best horror film franchises are well this is a, this is a cruel question um, <laughs> I so what I I tend to frame things as like my favorite versus best. Okay. So I go like Maybe. subjective. So I'll I'll say that the one that I revisit the most often and have most fun with is the Friday the Thirteenth <clears throat> movies um, because parts two and parts four are just 
exquisite horror slasher films and the, the craft, the filmmaking craft is really excellent in those entries. And then the later entries just get so much more silly and fun to the point where, <laughs> you know, part, part six is like a very intentional comedy horror and part seven is like Jason versus a telekinetic teenager. <laughs> and, and part eight is Jason takes Manhattan, but because of budgetary constraints, it's mostly Jason takes a cruise ship. And then, <laughs> and then it's like in very poorly staged Vancouver for the last like 15 minutes. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, there's something about the, the evolution of that. It's a Jason X yes, is in Jason space. Jason X is space. So Jason leprechaun and pinhead have all been in space. Um, so, I mean, I think, yeah, that I, for me, like that was also something I wanted to explore in, in curse of the reaper was my personal delight at the way these franchises can like have to keep finding new ways to bring, bring the slasher back or to bring in a new location or to do something, you know, different or outrageous with it. And it's just, um, and that usually results in the mythology getting more and more <laughs> complicated and or convoluted and often contradictory with previous entries. Um, it's just so, so fun to me that this kind of, it's almost like a game of telephone. Um, the longer a franchise goes. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, the nightmare on Elm street and Freddy Krueger, I think were perhaps the biggest influences on the Reaper um, and, uh, also I think because Freddie is, is a very verbal villain compared to Jason and Michael who are silent stalkers. Um, I, 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 my alliteration, I can't help myself with wordplay and alliteration <laughs> as, as you certainly noticed in the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a fun to, and, and, and Leprechaun and Chucky are also very like pun loving, uh, sort of jester characters. Um, but I think the franchise that I feel like doesn't get enough credit is Final Destination. Um, oh my gosh. Those, those films are just so, so creative. And <laughs> also when they're done really well, the suspense, like mm. su suspense is not easy to do well, especially compared to like a jump scare, right? But to maintain... Yeah. Uh, a long sequence of suspense, like in one of the entries, there's a, there's a gymnastics sequence that is just oh, unbearably yeah. tense. And <laughs> when the, when it finally happens, it is just a sh absolute shock. Um, <laughs> and, and those films, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that they're, they're finally doing another one soon. Um, oh, are they? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. So John Watts, who, who made the recent Spider-Man films is producing it, uh, oh, for HBO man. max. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think there's they're they're a really that's a really fun franchise. Uh yeah, my my partner and I um it, it it's like our go-to comfort food for whatever reason. Like if you have a <laughs> shitty day, you can go watch a final destination movie. <laughs> it's I love that. <laughs> Yeah, because those people are having a shittier day than you, for sure. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you just want to see, like, a teenage dork just get hit by a train or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I see the blueprints of, of all of these, you know, kind of different horror franchises on Curse of the Reaper. And, and maybe that's why 
I think it's so special and and so much fun is because there is kind of a dialogue that the book is having about, um, in some cases, how ridiculous, you know, the the horror film franchise really can be. You know, there there is a, a reaper in space. There's a, a reaper the next generation. I think right. Um, there's like all of these um, kind of callbacks to the, the horror film franchise, just as a, a consumerist kind of media. And then what the actual actors kind of think of in these new takes or these regenerations as some of the old mythology is lost and they, you know, kind of are nostalgic for like, remember the days when it was just a, a poor mute boy in a field. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, 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 and I think that's, you know, the Friday was the franchise also that kept coming back to like the little boy, Jason in different ways. And, um, and the, the mythology gets really conflicted and confused around like, wait, why is his mother avenging him if he didn't actually die and comes back in part two? Um, there's no explanation, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, taking that approach for me of like, okay, what would a, what would a very serious actor do with a role like this? What kind of work would they do to try to really imbue the character with, with truth? Um, and I did in my, you know, studies yeah, prepping for writing it, I read Robert England's um, autobiography and he was, he did have that, that theater background and, um, he is by all accounts, just like an absolute delight of a human being. Um, but I was really interested back when, when Nightmare on Elm Street was remade and Jackie O'Haley was cast as, as Freddy Krueger and Robert Eng was very kind and was like, I can't wait to see what he does with it kind of thing. But I just couldn't help thinking of like, that must be really hard. Like that's, there is, there's such a, um, when a character is such a part of your identity and you've given so much to it, to then have the producer say, yeah, we're going to have somebody else take over now and you, you're just going to watch. Um, and so I thought, well, what if somebody who somebody wasn't as gracious as, as Robert England was about that? <laughs> I, I love the character dynamic too, of uh, this, this kind of like the legacy character and, and how do you live up to legacy, you know? Um, in a way, I feel like it's a little bit like fiction, too, when fiction draws inspiration from something. There's always this thread of it being, like, derivative somehow. Um, and an audience, you know, or a fear of the audience saying, like, oh, well, that's derivative, right? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's just kind of mimicking this other thing. And it's like, how do you give soul to something so that it's it's really true and genuinely yours, um, while still paying homage or respect to the original, you know? Yeah. And I think that that question of legacy is definitely something I, I explored in the book because it just was, it was interesting to me that the pairing of the Reaper being this immortal character who just keeps coming back and will never die in this franchise. And then an actor who's, who's, you know, in his sixties and grappling with mortality and very, potent ways um there's a there's an interesting sort of contrast there that um i was i wanted to explore that notion of you know the way that horror films really uh are, reflect mortality back to us in many different ways and also through immortal characters and through very mortal characters who meet very mortal ends um and that yeah there's like there's a sort of existentialist 
question that I was interested in kind of bringing to the surface through that. I love the, uh, this is just a personal aside, but I love the exploration of just, uh, you know, legacy, uh, mortality, immortality in literature. I mean, one of our oldest stories is um, the the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Um, and and Gilgamesh is is constantly trying to figure out his relationship to his, his mortality after Enkidu dies, you know, he's so torn up about it. He goes on that search for immortality. Uh, And then at the end of the story, um, when he loses access to, to immortality, you know, he loses the herb that would make him immortal because the snake comes off and eats it. Um, The story closes whether or not it was intended to, to close on this scene, but it closes on the scene where he's overlooking the, the ramparts of Uruk, the, city where he he rules um and he tells his uh manservant to go and like count out you know pace out these walls of of uruk and and really look at it um you know tell me how high these walls are and it seems to me that what uh, gilgamesh is trying to say in that moment right is that perhaps if immortality is not something that we can attain through um you know, these supernatural means, you know, if, if, if immortality is not attainable to us through mortality, you know, as mortals, um, then maybe immortality might be obtained through the works of our lives, right? Through the, the cities we construct or the generations we protect, right? Um, and I feel like media is constantly coming back to this idea to think of, you know, the person and, and what is it that we leave behind, uh, when we go. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as, as far as kind of classic literature goes as well, I think Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is, is a book that I've read and reread and underlined every sentence of, um, and just, uh, was a huge influence on, on Curse of Reaper as well, just in the notion of this character who gives life to a monster and, uh, and the you know mo- monster term used loosely because it's a very especially in the the Frankenstein novel it's a very empathetic creature that just wants to be recognized by its creator it's just and it's kind of like if you don't I'm gonna fuck your shit up I'm sorry <laughs> that's, that's the that's the deal it's like own me and recognize me and to me that's also what horror is all about is is acknowledging our our shadow side and and integrating it in a healthy way. Um, because if we try to, if we shun it like Frankenstein's monster, it's, it's going to kill everybody we love. If we try to separate it from ourselves, like Dr. Jekyll tried to do, it's going to take on its own personality as well and also kill people. So I think that that's, that's a dynamic I've always been interested in that runs through as, as you're saying through all of classic literature as well. And, um, and yeah, that notion of legacy that, that for me, is so baked into horror fandom as well of, mm. of you know, the, 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 the big collectors uh, box sets and <laughs> um, these, this just notion of like, that there's this long history that um, that gets kind of cataloged and people can kind of collect it and have that sense of like, I think for some people, their collections are, are a legacy that they're building for themselves as well. It's like, this is, this is what I am passionate about. This is what I love. Um, but I think it is an interesting question to, to explore about what is it that we're, what is it that we're believe, leaving behind in our wake? What are people going to remember us by, you know, when we're gone? 
So what I'm hearing is that we have to invite you back when we do our Frankenstein deep dive for an episode on, on Frankenstein and, and uh, the influence <laughs> there on culture. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, consider it an open invita- invitation. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. I can't wait to underline it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did recently start rereading it, too, because we're about to do the the universal horror, uh, you know, kind of picture hey. talk uh, about Frankenstein. Um, and as a result, I've I've kind of been you know mulling back through Mary Shelley because um, I, I do think that that book is just truly superb. Um, and I think she's given us something really lasting there. Speaking of um, something lasting, I think what often makes uh, a horror film franchise so enjoyable, of course, is the villain. And, um, you know, kind of like the just the memorability, if you will. That's a word, right? Memorability. Sure, sure we'll go for it. All right. yeah, we'll accept um, <laughs> of a of a, a, a horror monster, you know, a horror villain. Um, what do you think makes for a really great horror villain? And what are some of the hallmarks that you've tried to weave into the Reaper as a villain? Yeah, I think for me, the there, there are a few different ways to approach a villain like that. It can be more of, you know, I think Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees are more of the uh, – closer to sort of a creature or like a, like a, like the alien from the alien franchise and that they're just sort of like killing machines um, and nonverbal, like we talked about as well. Mm. What I love about, you know, the Freddy Krueger, Krueger type villains um, is that they, there's, there's more opportunity to explore like fun and cleverness in, in the characters um, and that they're sort of taking delight in playing with their prey uh almost like like the joker um there's something so uh that really draws an audience in i think to a to a villain that is having fun and even if what they're doing while they're having fun is horrifying and murderous (laughs) uh, i think that i think that we really get drawn into that sense of uh of delight and play uh and i think that the horror genre really does a good job of embracing that sense of of play and especially the slasher genre when it's at its most creative it's it's literally playing with the human body in every type of way it's <laughs> it's you know coming back to final destination right it's like oh yeah all those kills it's like well i've never seen that before i've never seen a <laughs> a truck engine fly out into the back of someone's head and have the motor blade <laughs> spin their brains out um that's really clever and creative and funny and scary and um but I think as far as the villains, it's, you know, there's that notion that every villain is the hero of their own story. Right. Mm. And so I think that slasher films offer, they offer that, that, that the hero villain dynamic with the, with the final girl and the slasher. But I think more than that, that it, it's about exploring the fact that we have, we have both of those characters in all of us. And I think that that's that, that sense of moving away from like a binary like good versus evil. Some people might take comfort in like, okay, I'm going to watch the good, the good girl, Laurie Strode kill Michael Myers, the evil being. Um, But really I think it's more about like that we're exploring our own little Michael Myers in ourselves because (laughs) that's the other thing as the franchises go on, what you're coming back for is the killer because not a lot of final girls 
continue through every franchise. Right. Um, it's really, you're coming back for Jason. Um, and so it's an interesting shift that happens. And I think that's, that's telling about what we're exploring in those archetypes um, in ourselves. Yeah, I've noticed in, at least in some more recent horror literature, not necessarily in film, I think, I think film is, is always sometimes working to try to catch up a little bit, um, you know. But I, I think uh, like Grady Hendrix and um, Stephen Graham Jones, you know, they both have been writing a lot about the final girl and, and really like looking at the lasting impact of uh, horror on the people that survive that horror. I think, I think Riley Sager also did uh, a book about that. Um, and, and I think it's funny that we do put so much more emphasis on the recognizability of, you know, a horror, um, a horror movie villain, right. Than we do necessarily on the survivors. Um, but we still have our Laurie Strodes and we still have our, um, what's her face, uh, Sydney Prescott, you know, in, in those franchises that I think keep, keep coming back and give us, you know, kind of the, the vil or the, the hero to, to root for in contradistinction to the villain. Do you feel like it's as important to develop a heroic figure, uh, you know, to kind of counteract the villain in a, like a horror film franchise? Yeah, I think that it's, you know, that, that it offers a really, kind of classical archetypal dynamic that I think audiences can really key into is, is who am I rooting for in this story and what are my, my hopes and fears for them? Um, and I think, you know, my, my, my approach with Curse of the Reaper was to kind of play with it in a different way that, you know, Howard is struggling with his, with the Reaper, the character that he created. Um, but it's also, you know, he's like, again, like kind of like Frankenstein and, uh, the doctor and his monster. It's like, well, I created this thing and it's a part of me, but it's also this element of like, I am my own worst enemy, therefore. Um, so I think that giving audiences a way into both hope and fear for someone to survive the horrific uh, ordeal that this monster is, is putting them through. Um, and then also, you know, it, it's, it, it can be a really cathartic experience. And I think horror is all about catharsis of, Mm. of sur the, the experience of survival and overcoming our worst fears. Um, and so I think part of it is just tapping into like, what are the, what are the fears you want to, to tap into with, with this particular story? Cause I think it has to be more than just fear of death. Like that's the, that's the top layer. Right. Um, but what kind of, like, like I mentioned for me, it was like real existential fears, my own ones that I was tapping into of like, what, what am I, going to be remembered for what am I going to leave behind in my wake? How do I make my life worthwhile kind of questions that, that can be explored in a story like this? Yeah. Yeah. The, the symbolic reading for me, I I'm very much a symbolic reader. I mean, any, any particular episode where we talk about literature, I'm constantly coming back to what is this giving me as a, a human, you know, what's the human lesson here? how, Am I connecting with this and making sense of it in my life or how does it empower me, you know, to kind of make sense of my life? Um, and I think it's really fun when literature is, is able to do that, uh, you know, through stabbing people with pitchforks and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you think we're going to get any Reaper sequels? Because um, I, I mean, I'm personally just dying to read these full form screenplays of these nine movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my deepest hope uh, is to be able to to write a sequel. And I know I know what that would look like um, and have the title in mind. But it all depends on on the first book being a success. So. So, so listeners, please place your pre-orders now if you enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as far as the, you know, the um, those those film clips, my dream, and I haven't I haven't really shared this before, so this will be a, a lip bits exclusive. <laughs> but my my hope is is that uh, would be to see those as actually comics. I think that that would be the oh, cool. a fun way to for each film to be a one shot comic story and do an eight or nine um, series run to just let the Reaper be as, you know, no budget constraints to the mayhem. <laughs> uh, because I, I grew up reading the, the Dark Horse comics, put out a lot of Alien and Predator comics. And they would oh, yeah. have these, these one-shot, like, Predator in the Louisiana Bayou. It's just one <laughs> comic right. issue, and it's just havoc. Um, so I do think that would be a fun way uh, to create another meta media experience to 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 to, uh to pair with the the novel man my mind is blown over here i'm i'm (laughs) I'm just thinking about the experience as a comic book and and how much i'm like yes actually that would be perfect that's the perfect (laughs) marriage of of you know the like the literary with with still the very visual you know kind of like a a carnage that that we crave yeah that would be that would be a fun way yeah yeah (laughs) So what's in the pipeline for you? I know you've got a short story coming out soon. Um, I, I, I feel like I just saw that you had published a, a short story. Yeah. So um, it actually just got published uh, in dark matter magazine. Uh, their, their July, August issue. Um, I wrote a short story called H I D E hide, which stands in the, in the book, in the story, it stands for hyper intuitive digital entity. <laughs> and it is a sci-fi horror twist on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah, it's a really fun, uh, it was fun to dip dip more into the sci-fi side of things, but very much it's rooted in that that classic horror story. Um, so you can read that uh, in Dark Matter magazine, uh, hop onto their website. They're doing great work and have their own fiction inference, um, like Dark Heart Books with Sadie Hartman. Um, and then, yeah, working on the next, the next novel, uh, which is, can't say much about it at the moment, but it's, it's set in LA and I'm finding that right now, that's kind of my, my brand <laughs> might be to just explore the horrors of Los Angeles, which, <laughs> of, of which there are many. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be a, a common trope, but you know, you, you go and you write in LA and it's like, Oh, I got to write about this fucking city. And you go and you write in New yeah. York and it's like, I got to write about this fucking city, you know? It's uh, it's, there's, it's like you, you write what you know and what you kind of see on an every everyday basis. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment. Awesome, that is awesome. Um, well, where can people follow you online if they want to hear more about these projects? Yeah, you can follow me on uh, Instagram or Twitter. It's at Brian McWriter. Uh, my my name was taken, and I thought that was <laughs> a clever way to. Re- and also hard to spell my last name. So, uh, yeah, but B R I A N M C 
W-R-I-T-E-R. Um, and yeah, I love, I genuinely love connecting with, with folks on Twitter, like we've talked about, like there's just a great community there. Um, so yeah, feel free to connect with me on, on that platform. Yeah. Awesome. And when does your novel Curse of the Reaper come out? So Curse of the Reaper will release on October 4th of this year, 2022, and it will be a, you know, a hardcover trade release through Simon & Schuster. Um, Talos Press is the imprint of Skyhorse Publishing, but it will be, yeah, it should be available at all, anywhere books are sold. Um, but I encourage everybody to, to check out your local bookstores first and foremost, um, or go through bookshop.org to order it. But yeah, if you enjoyed this chat, please consider a pre-order. It's a big, big help for first-time authors in particular. Um, and hope you hope you enjoy it if you do check it out. I'm I'm just gonna throw in my my pitch here. Uh people know what I like and I they know that I really like what I like. And this is one of those books that I didn't just like. I loved it. Um I had so much fun with it. Uh and I can very safely attest you can pre-order this even through tiny bookstores uh, because that's what I did. I, <laughs> I ran, I, I pre-ordered it. I'm so excited to have the, the hard copy uh, for my, my library. So thank you so much. That means a lot to me. All right. Well, um, this has been just so incredibly awesome to have you on, Brian. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, Jeremy, is there anything you want to leave? I, I just want to say, um, Having read the the arc as well too, I I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, I've got to get my pre order in, um, so I need to make a trek to Pearl's Books and and make that make that that mark because I want it on my bookshelf as well too. So, um, no, it's been great talking to you, man. It's been great seeing you again, uh, and you are definitely welcome back. We'll uh, we'll do that other short story like we talked about. We'll have you back on when we do the Frankenstein deep dive. Um, and we just loved, yeah, we can't wait to have you back. Yeah. So thank right. you so much. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I'm glad we got to connect at StokerCon and have, have this wonderful chat. So thank you for having me on the show. All right. Well, I think that's it, everybody. See you soon, hopefully. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you.